Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Dealing with Your Past series. We are wrapping up our series and with it our practice on dealing with your past. And the basic idea is that who we are is shaped by where we come from. That your life today is the cumulative effect of your family of origin, the culture that you or I were born into, key events in our childhood or adolescence, and so on. And if we're brutally honest, when we think about the church, and I grew up in the church, I have an insider view, if we're brutally honest, there are a lot of people in the church who are stuck in their growth and maturity, in their emotional and spiritual development, stuck in their transformation to reach their full potential and apprenticeship to Jesus. And people are stuck in patterns that are unhealthy, if not toxic, and for sure out of line with the way of Jesus. But for some reason, a lot of people just can't get unstuck. Anybody been there? Some of you are like, yep, I've been there since 1984. Um, Well done. Why is that? Why do we get stuck? Well, I think one of the reasons is because to go forward, first we have to go back. A few days ago, I read this line from C.S. Lewis, a sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never from simply going on. Now, nowhere is this more true than in our family of origin which we have defined as your entire extended family going back three to four generations. Dr. Monica McGoldrick, a psychologist and specialist on the genogram and a really boring book on it that I read, writes this. Here's the best highlight of 400 pages, all right? (laughs) Quote, our culture tends to focus on the individual or at most on couples and children, downplaying the importance of extended families, though their role is enormous in shaping our lives. And the idea of moving on whenever problems arise has been a time-honored concept in our society. It's very American. If you don't get along with your parents, or if they don't like your choice of mate or way of life, just move to California (laughs) and see the family once or twice a year. But at the deepest level, we are a part of all that we have been and a part of all that our families have been. And seriously, now that California is so expensive, Portland is the new destination of choice. Seriously, a lot of you are here because you're running away from your family or that small town you grew up in. You are in some way, shape, or form running away from your past, and you're here to start over a clean slate, a new job, a new city, to get out of that constrictive environment or whatever. But guess what? You can't because you are still you. And everywhere you go, you carry patterns that you inherited from your family of origin, patterns that for some of you run back three, four generations. And in order to to break free from those patterns into the life that God has for you, first you have to go back and deal with your past. But here's the thing that I want to talk talk about tonight. Not all of those patterns are bad, am I right? The last few weeks have been emotionally exhausting because they've been all about the negative, but now we are finally ready to shift gears to the positive. On that note, Genesis 12, I hope that's open in front of you. Over the last few weeks, we looked at the story of Abraham and his family line for four generations. Now today, I want to look at the exact same story one more time, but from a very different 
angle. So we'll read a whole bunch of the Bible and just settle in for it, and then we'll talk about what it all means for you and me and our apprenticeship to Jesus. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household, your family of origin, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will, what? Bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a what? Blessing. I will, there it is again, bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be what? Blessed through you. This is the beginning of the story of Israel, a story that eventually leads all the way up to Jesus and then past that to you and me. This story is our story. And notice that the story starts with a blessing. Now, what exactly is this blessing? Well, the word blessing is Baruch in Hebrew. Can you say that? Baruch. One lectionary <laughs> defines Baruch this way. To bless is to speak words invoking divine favor with the intent that the object will have favorable circumstances or state at a future time. This is really easy to bend out of shape in America. So first, let's just talk for a minute about what this blessing is not. It's not a promise to make Abraham and his family line healthy, wealthy, and wise in the language of Benjamin Franklin, the architect of the American Happiness Project. It's not a promise that Abram will have a Smokenhoff wife and a six-figure salary and a condo in Kauai or X number of followers on Instagram. It's not a promise that Abraham will have an easy life at all. In fact, Abraham's life, if you know the story, was anything but easy. He left his family and his home all behind in Mesopotamia. He was a transient Bedouin until his death. He went through famine, bankruptcy, betrayal, infertility for decades, waiting on God, doubt, despair. So if it's not that, what is the blessing then? Well, it's a promise that God will father Abraham, that Abraham will live under divine favor, under the love and the approval and the good intentions of God, no matter what he goes through, through all the highs and all the lows of life this side of resurrection. And that's just the first part. The second part is that Abraham then in turn will father the world, that he will pass on that divine favor, that love, that approval, all of those good intentions to the world around him. He will be blessed to be a blessing. More on that later. And this blessing was passed down from Abraham to the next generation. Turn over to chapter 25, a few pages to the right. Have a look at verse 7. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of somewhere near another place. In the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field of Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. Notice the next line. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac. Turn the page to chapter 26 and look down at verse 23. From there, Isaac went up to Beersheba. That night, the Lord appeared to him and he said, I am the God of your father Abraham. I love that. Which God are you? I'm your dad's God. Oh, that one. Okay. Do not be afraid, for I am with you and I will what? Bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there, and he called on the name of the Lord. And then if you read the story, that blessing is passed down from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to the next generation, 
But in the next generation, we hit a little bit of a speed bump. Have a look at chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for his elder son Esau, and he said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. And we don't have time to read the whole story, but to summarize, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and his second son by the name of, anybody know? Jacob, hatch a plot to steal Esau's blessing. Skip down to 18. Jacob went to his father and he said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Outright liar. Remember we read this story a few weeks ago? Lying was a generational sin that was passed down from Abraham to Isaac. Now we're in generation number three and it's worse than ever. I have done as you told me. Please sit up. Give me Um, Eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Skip down to 27. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and he said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Now, obviously, I'm an urbanite, so I read that and I think, The smell of a field, that's kind of gross, right? I don't like it, it's dirty. And I think of like Tillamook on my drive over to the coast, you know? (laughs) Okay, this is an agrarian society. This sounds like a complicit today. It's not. This is a deep, rich blessing of peace and prosperity. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine, more than you need. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who what? Bless you be blessed. Now watch what happens. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food, brought it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, wait, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently. So notice the weight and the gravity of what's at stake here. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and he said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. Notice how graphic and visceral and emotive the language is. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? That's a Hebrew um, idiom that means a, a cheat, a liar. This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you, made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain or new wine. So notice the gravity to what a blessing is. It's not just a nice little card from dad. It's way more weighty than that. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. Notice he asked not once but twice for his father's blessing. And what is it that he's asking for? Keep in mind, it's not his inheritance. If you know that story, Esau is not a great character. He's a piece of work. He sold his inheritance to his little brother for how much? For a bowl of stew, right? So Esau is already like in desperate need of therapy, but he's about two millennia before that was a thing, all right? 
So what is he asking for? It's not his inheritance. It's not for his right as the firstborn son in that day and age to a double inheritance. No, what he's asking for is a blessing way more than that. It has nothing to do with money here. He's asking for a father to say, I love you. I believe in you. I see who you are, and I see who you're becoming, and I say yes to that. And I pass on the blessing from my father Abraham to me and now to you and one day to your son and to his son and to his and to his and to his. I bless you. That's what he's asking for, for a father to say, I see you and I bless you. But it does not happen. The closest thing we get is this, 39. His father Isaac answered him, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. So there's a blessing. It doesn't exactly have the same ring as his brother's blessing. Am I right? If you're, th- if you're Esau, you're thinking, wait, no, that's not okay. Which is why Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him for the rest of his life. Now, this is a tragic mix-up where the wrong son is blessed, but if you know the story, actually the mix-up was from God. Have a look at the next chapter, 28. Look down at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, which its top reaching to heaven, and Led Zeppelin was right there at the top, (laughs) ascending and descending on it. There above it stood, that's in the original Hebrew, not in the English translation. Mm -hmm. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, listen, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Which God are you? I'm your grandpa's God and your father's God. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Notice, there it is, all of that same language. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So in spite of all of the family drama, and this family is hyper dysfunctional, still the blessing is alive and well in Abraham's family line. And guess what? It's passed down again to the next generation. One more story and we'll end. Turn to chapter 48, just to the right, chapter 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So now we're decades later in the story. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So now we're on generation number five from Abraham. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel, that's another name for Jacob in his old age, rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. We just read that story. And there he wept. He blessed me, and he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Skip down to eight. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are those? 
They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. This is your grandson, Ephraim, your grandson, Manasseh. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. Skip down to 15. Then he blessed Joseph and he said, may the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. Now when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head for the double blessing. But his father refused and he said, I know my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and he said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And the story goes on. So the blessing is passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob, from Jacob to his son Joseph, from Joseph to his sons Ephraim and Manasseh and all down the family line and the story goes on. Now the point that I'm getting to tonight is very simple and easy to wrap your head around. Just like Abraham's family line, we all inherit a mixed bag from our family of origin. No family is perfect. I come from a great family. My parents were here last hour. Trust me, we're amazing. But if you were to hang out with my family on Christmas morning or for Thanksgiving or a summer vacation, you would figure out pretty quick, okay, they're great, but they have issues just like everybody else. But then on the flip side, even if you come from a hyper-dysfunctional home, an abusive father or an absentee mother, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or worse, who knows? Even if you are the byproduct of death or tragedy and your father died when you were young or your mother died or the byproduct of divorce, still, very few families have nothing good at all to pass on. At the very least, they gave you life. No matter how messed up your family is, you're here because of your family. The odds are that no matter your family of origin, where you fall on that spectrum of health to dysfunction, there is some kind of a blessing some kind of divine favor over your family line that you inherited from your mom, from your dad, or if not from them, from a grandfather or an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or a great-grandma or somebody down the line. My friend Mark Sayers, writer, intellectual that we love here, last time he was in town, we had a long dinner right down the street at Tasting Alder. We had this fascinating chat about what he calls sovereign foundations. What he means by sovereign foundations is God's role and the family that you were born into, the culture you grew up in, key events in your childhood, adolescence that made you who you are, the day and age that you were born into, all of which shaped your identity and your calling in life. No man is an island, as the poet John Donne so eloquently said. The older I get, the more I realize that I stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before me. That the American pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing says far more about white privilege than it does about reality. That I am here because somebody else was here before me. 
I was educated because my grandfather was the first ever in our family line to go to college because he grew up in poverty, because his dad died when he was young. They didn't have enough money to put him in the ground, and he hitchhiked down to Oregon and was the first member to go to, fa- to college in our entire family line. Like, I'm here because of that. I'm where I'm at because of people that have come before me. Both of my parents were first-generation followers of Jesus. They're kind of like the Abraham and Sarah in our family line. I'm a follower of Jesus, in all, in all honesty, because of them. Um, I'm a pastor. My dad is a pastor. I grew up, I've been in seminary since I was in my mother's womb, all right? <laughs> I grew up, seriously, I remember when I was four, five, six years old, sitting in the back of an elders meeting, reading, you know, whatever book while they're working out church discipline over this, that, or the other. I've been in some kind of church leadership as long as I can remember. I'm a dad, and I think I'm a good dad. I'm not the best dad on the planet, but I'm a good dad. Why? Because my father was an incredible father. If I'm half the father he is to Jude, Moses, and Sunday, I will be a raging success. I'm a writer. I have a book coming out Tuesday. My mom, if you know her, is a writer. I grew up with my mom in a literary household. Here, read this book, read that book. Let's homeschool you and make sure you're a super nerd who doesn't ever feel comfortable in society but is really into reading, you know? I grew up in that. I remember my mom speaking over my life, you were born to be a writer. Really? I'm six. You know that already? Like, just speaking over my life. My point is that I would not be who I am today, for better or for worse, on the negative and on the positive, if it were not for the sovereign foundations of my family. It shaped my identity and it shaped the call of God on my life. Now, I have a heritage of faith in my family line out of my parents. When my parents first came to faith, slowly but surely, basically all of my family came to faith over another decade or two. Maybe you don't have that heritage at all. There was somebody last hour who said, my dad was amazing. He's Muslim, I have no heritage of faith, but he was a great dad, but I don't have that heritage. So maybe you have little or no kind of heritage of faith but we all have some kind of a heritage. I come from a culture where this is downplayed. White, middle-class American culture doesn't have a high view of ancestry. I honestly have no clue even the ethnicity of my last name. I don't know, are we German? Are we British? Are we Jewish? I think maybe that I don't think it's true, but I like that idea, you know? It would explain God's call on my life or something like that. Um, my sister and I are trying to figure it out, but we don't even know. There's, come over to my house. There's no family crest over the fireplace with a Latin motto or whatever that, you know, we memorized when we were at Yale or whatever. It's just, there's like a little piece of pottery from Heath Ceramics. That's it. And I'm a minimalist. There's nothing else. That's it. That's over the fireplace. Upper class Americans do a better job with this particularly from the East Coast, old money, you know, you trace your lineage back to the Mayflower and you're just really stuck up, but whatever, okay. (laughs) As do minority communities, in particular Latino and Asian families, in particular because they are less individualistic and more familial. But a question that I've been asking over the last month of our practice on dealing with your past is, that's kind of a weird question, but what does it mean to be a comer and not a griffin or a hook? Or what does it mean that I'm a comer? What is my heritage? that I pass on to Jude, and what does it mean to, to be a Comer man, that I pass on to my daughter Sunday? What is that heritage, that heritage that is unique and that is special to my family line? If, if there's a blessing for all of those that have been adopted into the family of Abraham, well, no one family has it all. What, what is a special and unique little corner of that blessing that I carry in my DNA? that I carry in my bloodstream, that I carry in my family story, and how do I pass that on? I say that because we need to identify both our generational sins, 
the patterns that we need to break, we've done work on that over the last three weeks, but also our generational blessing, the patterns that we need to identify, call out, celebrate, say that's good, beautiful, and true, and how do I pass that on to the next generation? How do I pass that on to the people around me, the church that I'm a part of, the city that I call home? And this needs to be said in our day of victim, and age of victimization and the angst and the ennui of a millennial moment. There's a world-class sociologist by the name of James Davidson Hunter. I'm not sure if you've read his work. He's the one who coined the phrase, the culture wars forever ago. His book, To Change the World, has really shaped our view of cultural change. Recently, he's popularized an idea that's been getting a lot of traction in kind of academic and intellectual circles that he calls ressentime. It's a French word that was used first by Nietzsche to name political motivation. The word itself means something like anger and envy and revenge and fear as the motivation for political or social action. He writes this, ressentiment is grounded in a narrative of injury or at least perceived injury a strong belief that one has been or is being wronged. The root of this is the sense of entitlement a group holds. The entitlement may be to greater respect, greater influence, or perhaps a better lot in life, and it may draw from the past or the present. In the end, these benefits have been withheld or taken away, or there is a perceived threat that they will be taken away by those now in positions of power. The sense of injury is key. Over time, the perceived injustice becomes central to the person and the group's identity. Thus, instead of letting go, the sense of injury continues to get deeper. Now, ressentiment isn't when you say that you've been victimized at all. There are legitimate victims all over our society. An obvious example is the black community and the indigenous peoples of North America. When Hunter writes about ressentiment, that's not at all what he's writing about. He's not a racist kind of thing or a post-racial thing. What he means is that when an individual or a group gets stuck in a vicious cycle of victimization and it can't move on out of its anger, out of its envy, out of its warped lust for revenge, out of its fear of the future, it can't break free of all of that. And the great problem with ressentiment and a culture of ressentiment in politics and in society as a whole is there is absolutely no hope for the future. That's why there's so much anger and all that angst because there's no hope in the resurrection of Jesus and all that it's unleashed into the world. Now here's why I say that. We live in the perfect storm right now in a nationwide, if not Western European-wide, culture of ressentiment, in the breakdown of the family, in the first adult generation that is the byproduct of divorce, so 60% of the millennials at Bridgetown are the byproduct of a broken home, and then, of course, at the kind of spirit of entitlement that is rampant across millennial culture. And I know you're not all a millennial, but a few of you are. And in that kind of a perfect storm, in that day and age, in that kind of a cultural moment, it's easy to get sucked into victimization and an anger out of that and an envy out of that and a fear for the future. And then it's easy to lose hope for your future, to lose hope and just think, I can't break any patterns. It's my destiny. It's my lot in life. And to lose hope for your future, hope to break patterns, hope for blessing over your life, hope for divine favor over your life. Especially, you know, doing your genogram, which we've all been kind of up to. Hopefully you're on that journey over the last couple of weeks with your Bridgetown community. It's really easy for anything like me to focus on all the negative and ignore all of the positive. I'm a perfectionist. I'm a critical thinker. Give me three minutes. I'll think of 25 things, you know, wrong with my family but it's really easy for me to live blind and oblivious to all the good in my family line. 
Which is why, if you remember, a month ago when we started our journey, I said, listen, watch out when you work up your genogram that you, that you have the right heart posture and you don't end up mad at your mom or mad at your dad. If anything, if you're doing it right, the genogram and that process of writing it all out should elicit compassion in you when you realize where your parents or where your family came from and you realize that hurt people hurt. And if your mom or your dad or whoever hurt you, the odds are they were hurt by their mother or their father. But also, it should illuminate, it should open up the eyes of your heart to all the ways in which you have been blessed by your family line. Not just the negative, but also the positive. Not just generational sin, but also generational blessing. Now, here's why this matters. And trust me, you're thinking, where is he going? I am going somewhere, I promise. From Abraham on, God's agenda has always been to bless the world through his people. Think back to that blessing. I will bless you, and all nations on earth will be baruched, will be blessed through you. Put another way, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. You, all of you in Abraham's family line, and if you're a follower of Jesus, by faith, you have been adopted into Abraham's family line. All of you are a medium, a conduit, an agent of blessing, of divine favor to the world. That means that when you are blessed, or when I am blessed, whether it's at a financial level, or a relational level, or a gifting, or whatever it is, when you are blessed by God, it's not just to enjoy it. Oh, thank you, God, for the divine hookup. You're awesome. It's for you to steward. It's for you to say, okay, I'm blessed. What can I do with it now? I'm blessed in this area of my life. I have money, I have an education, I have a background, I have a family, I have this, I have that, I have whatever. I don't have that blessing that so-and-so has. I don't have that blessing, but here's one I do have. And how do I pass that on? You have a role, in fact, I would argue you have a responsibility to pass that blessing on. We are here today because the blessing was passed down Abraham's family line. Without Abraham, there would have been no Isaac, no Jacob, no Joseph. Without that family, there would have been no Israel. Without Israel, there would have been no Jesus. Without Jesus, there would have been no you, no me, no Bridgetown, no First Baptist. You would not be here tonight, and neither would I at all. And one of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus as those that have been adopted into the family of Abraham is to identify all the ways in which our family line has been blessed and to make sure that we pass that on to the next generation. Now, this is implications for every single one of you in the room tonight, but at the risk of sounding 50 years behind the times or worse, misogynistic, I wanna to speak to the fathers in the room tonight. I know it's the 7 p.m., there's not a lot of you here, but there are a few, and I don't really care about the statistical breakdown right now. I wanna to speak to the fathers, or all of you that hope one day to become a father. Fathers, you play a key role in this. Mothers, you too. Siblings, you too, but fathers, we need you so badly in our church and in our society as a whole. Notice that in the story, the blessing was passed down from the father, not the mother, not the aunt or the uncle, not the family, from the father. And notice that there was a moment when the father laid hands on Isaac or Jacob or Joseph and he blessed the child. Now, part of that was it was a patriarchal culture, and that was kind of the cultural norm. Of course, sure, absolutely. But still, I think there's something to it. Here we are, millennia later, in a secular society, in a progressive city, post-Christian environment, well into or past second-wave feminism, into gender dysphoria, past he and she, to a whole other cultural moment. And still, 
in study after study after study, there are piles of scientific evidence and psychological research from every spectrum of society to all make the point that every single child needs his father or her father's blessing. There's just no way around it. No matter how progressive you are or modern your family is, a child needs a father's blessing. Dr. John Trent, in his best-selling book, The Blessing, which was first published um, in the 1980s, but I just got around to reading it a few weeks ago, does in-depth work on the story of Abraham and the patriarch family, but then also with psychological research. And he identifies five aspects of a blessing. I found this really helpful. The first is meaningful and appropriate touch. So in that story, Isaac laid hands on Jacob, and Jacob laid hands on Ephraim and Manasseh. It's interesting, something happens when you touch another human being at a neurobiological level. I'm not gonna try to explain it to you and sound like I'm smart, because I'm really not. Some doctors in the room tonight, I just know you will judge me like it's nobody's business, all right? But something happens. I've read, I read an academic essay that I didn't really understand, but something happens at a neurobiological level to both parties when you touch one another, there's an infusion of life force, of energy, of health to the immune system. And there is something in particular about a father's touch. Second is a spoken message. I grew up in a very verbal home, but a lot of people grew up in homes that were loving or at least semi-loving, but where little or nothing was ever said. Love needs to be spoken. Out loud, if not written down, it needs to be said in an emphatic and a crystal clear way. Third is attaching high value to the one being blessed. When a father in particular says, I love you, I value you, because you are worthwhile. And this is so important that this happens when a child is young because they haven't done anything to earn that value yet, right? All they have done is cost money, trust me, I'm a dad, and destroy your house and wreck that really nice piece of furniture and make you sick and tired and exhausted all the time and take up all of your free time. And they've done some great things as well. But man, they've done nothing to earn. There's no bragging rights about, oh, my son went to Harvard or my daughter is a doctor or so-and-so's family. Nothing. All they have done is take, 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 and still you say to them, you, just because you're breathing, have value and worth to me, to our family, and to God himself. So important that happens from a father to a child. Fourth is picturing a special future. So it's more than just, hey, I love you and I believe in you. It's when you as the father see over the time-space continuum into that child's future and you name it years ahead of time. You will be this. You will be that. And five, it's an active commitment to fulfill the blessing. So you don't drop the mic and walk off. A lot of parents do this. You hit 18, great, love you, have a good life. There's a commitment to stay there. If you have money, then here's money for college. If not, here's wisdom to navigate life. I'm here for you to help you. You see, a blessing is more than a prayer, it is a prophecy. Words have the power of life or death, the power to shape our reality, especially when we are young. What you speak over your children, they become. That's why it's such a tragedy when parents speak negative words over their children. I don't know if it's a millennial parent thing or just an American parent thing, but it is, trust me, a thing. And every time I hear it, I cringe. Part of me dies inside. Oh, you know, Susan, she's just a little terror. Well, of course she is. You just spoke that over her life. Oh, John, he's a klutz. Oh, he's terrible at math. Oh, he'll never be any good at basketball. Well, of course, well, in my case, that was actually prophetic. That was true. But 
Um, of course not. You just spoke that over his life. Your children will live up or down to the words that you speak over them. For my wife and I, we manipulate language all the time with our children. When Jude and Moses are in a fight, we're like, you two, you're best friends. I believe that in faith. Your best friends. You hate each other right now, and you have for a while, but you are best friends. When Sunday's room is a disaster, it's Sunday. You are a neat and clean young woman. I believe that in faith. I see over the time-space continuum into the future. Please, Jesus, you are a neat and clean young woman. It's like the one, it's a, it's like the one generational sin in my family that somehow I did not pass on was that of like, an obsessive compulsive neat freak disorder or whatever. Man, I'm zero for three with all of my children. <laughs> but there's something to that. There is a prophetic power to a blessing. When you envision a child's future and you partner with the Spirit of God to call it into being. I do this on a regular basis for my children, all three. Um, I just did it two weeks ago before I left for I was out of the country in South Africa for a while. Before I left, the night before I left, I lined up my kids on our bed and one at a time, I made eye contact, my hands on Jude's shoulder, a few inches away from his face. Jude, my firstborn, son of my loins. My dad, <laughs> my dad used to say that to me and I thought it was so gross and nasty. And now I say it to my kids just for fun, you know? It's just like generational sin right there. You, Jude, you are, and I speak love and approval and a future over him. And then Moses, you are, and then Sunday, you are. And you should see, my sons and my daughter, you should see the chest swell up, the eyes bulge open and radiate a new kind of humble confidence in their identity and calling in life. And there will come a day, um, I bless on a regular basis, but there will come a day when my sons become men. I'm working right now on a intense discipleship journey from 13 to 15, an initiation rite, and there'll be a moment when, Jude, you are no longer a boy, you are now a man, and we will treat you like a man, and we will expect you to act like a man, and in that moment, there will be a blessing. My point is that we all need to be blessed, ideally, if at all possible, by our own fathers. When we're not blessed, we end up like Esau. We break down. You know, I feel like we're a generation of Esau's, either unblessed or kind of, sort of, half-blessed. If you know that story, Esau doesn't do all that well. I mean, he grows up, he has a good job, he makes a ton of money, he has a wife and a family, but deep down, he is an angry, hurt child in a man's body. In fact, most of the really driven and quote-unquote successful men and women I know, from CEO, executive types, to megachurch pastors, are actually little boys and little girls who were never blessed. So they get up every day, and they work 90 hours a week, and they lie, and they cheat, and they steal, and they post selfie after selfie, and they aggrandize, and they get attention, and they blow money, and they do this, that, and the other, and they mow down the little guy, not because they're some horrible person, because they were never blessed. And they are striving for the love and the approval of a father. That's all they need to hear. You're good enough. You don't have to make a ton of money. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to do anything. You are good enough just as you are, and we believe in who you are, and we believe in your future. But so many people are just like Esau, are racked by a deep, unmet need for a father's blessing. You know, it's interesting in Genesis 2, which is one of the first stories in all of the Bible about the family unit, 
We read that iconic line, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. There comes a moment when you need to leave home. Like if there was ever a verse that the millennial generation really needed to read, it was that one. Um, there comes a moment when you need to leave home. But listen, if you think about it, in the ancient world, this was not literal, it was symbolic. And more and more in the modern world, with urbanization and how expensive Portland, um, and we're on fast track to become yet another major city where just cost of living is through the roof. So this is less and less a thing. More and more where people, where family lives, family lives together, multi-generational housing, I'm all for that. I think that's great. My point is, this wasn't literal, it was symbolic. In the ancient world, you would leave home and you'd set up a tent on the other side of the fire if you were a Bedouin. <laughs> or if you were an urbanite, you would construct your own room off to the side of the family estate. It was an emotional leaving, not a physical leaving. But the problem is, children who are never blessed have a really hard time leaving home. They get emotionally stuck in adolescence, forever post-child but pre-adult. I can't help but wonder if the perpetual adolescence of American millennials, the Peter Pan and Tinkerbell syndrome, where the men never want to grow up and the women never want to age, the endless, ongoing, never-never land of immaturity and out of that mediocrity, I can't help but wonder how much of it is in part because we were never blessed or we were half-blessed because of the breakdown of the father, of the family, because of the disappearance of that rare breed of a man called father in American culture. So I'm begging you fathers, please, please bless your children. Those of you that one day will be fathers, remember this, store this deep in your memory. Please bless your son, your daughter, your children. I'm not saying this is a rebuke. I think some of the fathers in our church are incredible. Anything as an encouragement, bless your children. Don't miss it. We need you to play your role in the family and in the family of God. No, of course, the elephant in the room right now that we have to talk about is, man, what if I was never blessed? I didn't have a dad like you, John Mark. And I have issues, my dad has issues, but I was blessed. I didn't have that. My dad died when I was seven. My mom left when I was a kid. My family's a wreck, or my dad was around and he was abusive, he was a living hell. Or my dad was fine, he was great, but he was not a follower of Jesus. I was never blessed, and now I'm 20, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60. We prayed for somebody last hour who had to be at least 65. And I'm an Esau. I was never blessed and I, I'm stuck there. I ache for a blessing that I should have received but for some reason never did. Um, if that's you, turn to Matthew chapter 10 and we'll end here today. Matthew chapter 10. I just wanna end, as always, with Jesus. With the Jesus who taught us to call our God Father. I'm sorry, not Matthew 10, Mark 10. Have a look at the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Mark 10, 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked him, them. Now when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That's a nice way of saying Jesus was really mad. How do you make Jesus really mad? It's one of the few times while well, you get between Jesus and the Father and the blessing of children. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, so why, you have to receive a blessing, will never enter it. 
And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Let me read that again. He took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. If you were never blessed by your Father on earth through Jesus, you can be blessed by your Father in heaven. And you can become a part of a new family. Jesus set up the church to be the place where people are reparented into the family of God. The church at its core is a family, and it is a family of blessing. We stand in the line of Abraham. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are people who should constantly be looking around for a way to bless, constantly asking the question, how am I blessed? How do I pass that on? In what way, shape, or form, through my family line, through my childhood, through key events in my life, how am I blessed? And how do I pass that blessing on? Thursday night, it was amazing to be at the Civic Forum. Hundreds of people packed into the Aladdin Theater with the mayor, not for an indie rock show, but with the mayor and the city commissioners to talk about homelessness and foster care. You know what we were really asking as the church in Portland? We were asking, how do we bless our city? Because we're blessed. We have a home. How do we bless those that don't have a home? We have a family or come from a family. How do we bless a four-year-old who doesn't have that? A seven-year-old whose mom is a meth addict and whose dad is gone. How, How do we bless? And I was just sitting there, and I was next to Justin, who's adopted two beautiful little children out of the foster care system. And I was watching Brooke from our church up on stage, and I was just so proud to say, I know them. I know this guy next to me. I know her. That foster parent, I know them because you, man, they get it more than anybody else, I think, in our entire church, that we are blessed to be a blessing. And we all have a responsibility to do this. I love how many young people are involved in foster care in our church. It's just beautiful. It's like the Angelina Jolie of the kingdom of God thing. It's like, (laughs) I love it. It's really cool. We all have a responsibility for this, not just the fathers, Even if you're single, even if you never plan on having children ever, you're like, God forbid, no. As part of the family of God, you have a responsibility and the opportunity, it's a good thing to bless, to identify all the ways that you've been blessed through your family line and God's hand in your life, the sovereign foundations of your story, and to pass that on to our church, to your home community, to a niece, to a nephew, to your family, literally, and your family of God to the city that we're a part of, to our generation and our world. That's the beauty of it. Fathers, you play a key role. Like, I needed to say that. I needed to say it. But you don't have to be a father to bless. Think through that grid. Meaningful and appropriate touch, a spoken word, attaching high value, picturing a special future, and an active commitment to fulfill the blessing. We can all do that. You can take your best friend out to coffee, and you can bless her this week. You can bless your home community. You can bless the person to your right, to your left. You can bless your parent. You can bless an aunt or an uncle or a niece or a nephew. You have the power and the authority and the full weight and the backing of the fatherhood of God behind you. You have every right as a son or a daughter of the father with a capital F of the family to bless. You can do this. And so can I. So our practice for the coming week Um, And if you missed the last couple of weeks, go back, listen to the podcast. Everything's available at practicingtheway.org. It's a genogram workbook. Make sure you download that. There's two, I think, video tutorials on how to make your own genogram. And each week, there's four weeks of practice. Each week is just an exercise or two. This coming week's practice is three really easy, simple exercises called Start, Stop, Continue. 
where you take a little time to dream and to write out all the patterns in your family line that you want to stop, that you want to start, and that you want to continue. And you get to tie together all of the hard work. After a month of hard work, we're finally ready to put it all into one place and to shift gears from dealing with our past to dreaming about our future. And that we have to take that step forward. Right? We go back, yes, to our past, but we don't want to get stuck there. You know people that are stuck in their past. Every time you have coffee, every time you chat, it's always about what happened 20 years ago, 10 years ago, always. And they, they're, they're stuck. The whole point to, is to go back, deal with your past, to get unstuck in the present, and then to move forward into the future and into all that is waiting, into all the healing and all the freedom that is waiting for you in life with Jesus and the family of God. Let's stand and pray together. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.